Welcome to Let's Talk About Self-Esteem. I'm your host, Marion Davis, president of Self-Esteem Boston. Today, we're going to talk about self-acceptance and self-esteem. But before we do that, I want you to meet my co-host today, Gail Morrison. Hello, Gail. Welcome. Hi, Mar- Hi Marion. How are you Hi. doing? I'm doing okay. And uh, I just want to give people a little bit of information about you. Gail was the founding program director and lead facilitator for Self-Esteem Boston for a whole decade at least. She created Skills for Success Curriculum. She is the author of our guidebook, The Elements of Self-Esteem. Currently, she continues to incorporate the concepts of self-esteem in her work, her therapeutic work, with individuals and groups. And also, another little tip here is she was my other host on self-esteem talk radio that we did a million years ago and we did that for at least 10 years can you imagine people would come out from 9 to 10 o'clock at night in boston come to the studio and be there live so they could talk about whatever they're whatever they talked about so um welcome welcome gail and um, thank you really appreciate that you took the time and energy to, you know, help me with the questions and also, um, you know, take a look at some really wonderful people. So um, I'll introduce our our special guest for today is Lorraine Lafada. Lorraine is a clinical supervisor, trainer, clinician, advocate, and administrator in the field of domestic violence for 45 years. Wow. She holds expertise in the areas of childhood and adult sexual assault, infertility, partner abuse, domestic violence, substance abuse disorder, child bearing trauma and loss and grief work trauma informed practice, Woo-hoo. women in conflict with the law and body image issues. She is one of the founding staff members of Safe House, one of the first domestic violence houses in the country. She currently runs a private psychotherapy practice in Medford and does clinical consultation with numerous human service agencies in New England. And with that, Lorraine, give them a drum roll, do the belly dance, come on in. (laughs) I didn't say that. I didn't tell people that you did that. No, but it's okay. It's a good thing to say that of those, hello, everybody, first of all. Hello, Miriam. Hello, Gail. Hello, anybody who's listening to this. Yeah. And I think it's a good thing that you said 45 years in DV partner abuse, 35 years as a practicing uh, psychotherapist, and 20 of those years as a belly dance teacher and performer because some of what I'm going to talk about in terms of self-acceptance today actually Mm -hmm. relates to my experience teaching belly dance to folks. So, Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. having me. I'm really excited yeah. to yeah. be here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, self-acceptance, you know, it's, it's like such a big part of self-esteem. And, you know, self-acceptance is about really, truly accepting all of ourselves, you know, our, our positive attributes and our uh, flaws, let's say, yes. or places we're we're not happy about 
in our life. I, I wonder if you could speak about that a little bit. You work with so many populations that you must see that across the board, self-acceptance being, you know, key to one's growth. Yes, absolutely, Gail. And let me just say that when um, I was told that this was the topic I was going to talk about, what happened inside of me is I thought self-acceptance, gulp, not, oh, that means not judging yourself. And then I thought, wow, I've spent a lifetime trying to figure out how not to judge myself and a significant portion of that lifetime supporting other people in figuring out how not to judge themselves. But instead, um, to accept the totality of who we are. Um, and I think behind the concept of self-acceptance is the idea that, um, you know, early psychological thought was very much rooted in the idea that guilt and shame were motivators for change. And that if you got to the root of what was making you feel guilty or shamed and worked through that, um, you would somehow uh, evolve and heal. Um, and what we've really come to understand is that guilt and shame are not motivators for change. If anything, guilt and shame make us feel worse about ourselves, sort of rob us of the energy um, th that is necessary in order to uh, grow. That as we sort of judge ourselves and compare ourselves and um, rank order ourselves, what ends up happening is that we feel worse and worse and worse about ourselves. We diminish ourselves and we rob ourselves of, again, the actual energy it takes to make change. So I think, and I'm hoping I'm responding to your question, Gail, but I think that self-acceptance is so important because what it does is it sort of fills up the fuel tank for change. Whereas, again, comparing, ranking, measuring ourselves against other people um, sort of depletes our fuel tank. Not that I want to talk in terms of, you know, <clears throat> non-renewable resources. But really, if you think about it, guilt and shame is like it, it works like a non-renewable resource. It just keeps taking and taking and taking away. Right. So, so in terms of that, you know, guilt and shame aren't motivators. What would be a motivator? Well, I think, um, again, both of you said it, the idea that um, instead of looking at what's wrong or broken or thinking about myself as someone who has spaces that like are deficit spaces, to think about the fact that I am worthy because I am, right? that I don't have to earn my space on the planet. Um, that the totality of who I am is enough for me to be worthy. Um, I'm trying to really think, the, the idea that, again, there isn't anything that we have to do. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't look at challenges that we've 
confronted in the past. It doesn't mean that we can't learn from our mistakes. It doesn't mean that we can't recognize when we've hurt someone and make amends. It doesn't mean that, that we don't pay attention to places where there have been challenging issues and, and, and that we pretend like those places don't exist and that we can't do something about them. But it much more talks about the idea that um, I'm trying to think about the best way to say this. It, it really has us think about the idea that um, with recognizing that all of us as humans make mistakes, all of us as humans who are in relationships sometimes uh, hurt other people, that how we move forward is to um, accept that about ourselves, to not be weighed down um, carrying around a sense of blame about that, but instead, again, changing the way that we are thinking and talking to ourselves about who we are. And that self-acceptance allows us to do that. Now, I don't know, Gail, when you were actually asking that question, if you were asking for specifics. Like, I think that there are people work with affirmations and that's a way to change our inner self-talk. I think people can do meditation and that's a way to change our inner self-talk. I think that there are um, quotes and readings um, and visualizations that we can do that help us change our inner self-talk. But the first thing I think, the very first step is really getting in touch with the fact that um, all of those ways in which we look at ourselves as wounded um, and all the ways in which the culture looks at us as wounded um, like are not helpful in terms of actual change. Do you have extreme esteem? How do you measure success? I choose to be conscious about not using drugs and alcohol. I fill my life with purpose by helping others. I'm here to live up to my own expectations. I live by values I respect. I am responsible for my own happiness. I love and accept myself exactly as I am. If you want to learn more on how to achieve extreme esteem and personal success, selfesteemboston.com. I love and accept myself exactly as I am. So um, wh why is it easier, or it seems like it's easier to accept somebody else but not ourselves? So, yeah, Can I tell a really quick story about a belly dance class that I ran because this is a sure. perfect, yeah. Ladies, of course. Um, so I can remember teaching belly dance classes and people would come into class and people, these would be people of all shapes, people of all sizes, people of all races and ethnicities, people carrying multiple kinds of identities in terms of cisgender and trans and gay and lesbian and bi, right? And people would look at each other and they would be so kind and loving and generous toward one another. And people would say things like, God, I love that color on you, or the swish of that skirt is amazing, or, or you've really been working on your shimmy, I can tell you've turned it up to 
tan or, or, or that hip belt and that jangle really accentuates that movement. Or I love what you've done with your hip drop. Can I stand near you and practice like when class starts? Because I, I think I'm going to learn from you, right? And there was this just extraordinary cacophony of positivity and care and like a loving gaze that people could see everyone as powerful and beautiful, which was immediately followed up by a litany of self-criticism and self-loathing and self-hatred, where people would say, Lorraine, can I stand behind you while we're doing class? Because I can't look in the mirror. I can't. I just can't. Or someone would say, I'm going to stand on the edge of class because, you know, it's really hard for me to look at myself. Or somebody would say, I have to turn away from the mirror because I can't fathom spending an entire hour looking at my arms or my belly or my hair or my fill in the blank. There was always some part of the self that people were feeling hatred toward. And I was so struck by this, like that the capacity to see the beauty, power, grace in everyone else seemed so easy. Nobody had to work hard at that. But that to turn that around, to change that, um, and to look at oneself with that same kind of self-acceptance, with that same kind of love, with that same kind of grace, seemed impossible for people. And I hear the question that's being asked, like, you know, where does that come from? Like, where did we learn to not love ourselves? Where did we learn to judge ourselves so much? Where did we learn that, like, self-acceptance was something that we only directed toward other people and not toward ourselves? And I think, you know, as earlier <laughs> before this started, I said something about Simone de Beauvoir, and I can remember being a, a girl in high school, actually junior high school, going to the public library, taking out The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir and reading it. And I remember that she changed my life in that she made me understand power over and privilege over because she talked about the fact that those in authority, those in control, define themselves as the self, like they were the pinnacle of what it meant to be a human being and everybody else who didn't hold p power and privilege like was other, right? Belonged in the other category. And that um, folks who held that power and privilege had all these tactics to keep this kind of othering alive, right? They had war and genocide and slavery and poverty and racism and disabilism and homophobia and transphobia, they, right? And sexism, like all those ways to keep a whole set of people other, right? A whole ways that they thought of themselves as having power over and other people literally not having any power at all. And when you keep getting put in, in the category of other, when you keep getting put there, it becomes like almost second nature to keep comparing yourself to those people who hold the power and the authority and control. And to like 
measure yourself against those people and to continue to see yourself as wanting. And then I think there are the other sort of arms of control that they had that, that were sort of in their hands and that's mass consumerism and all types of media sort of pointed out like again what you were supposed to look like what you were supposed to be like what 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 acceptable self looked like and so so given that that exists right and we and we acknowledge it and you know, we we see the history of it, which you put so um, eloquently, really. Thank you, Lorraine, for ex explaining it so well. Um, you know, it, it, it feels a bit overwhelming. So, you know, how do we, you know, move through life knowing that this kind of thing will be an ongoing uh, onslaught to our self-acceptance, our self-esteem, our, uh, our place in the world, rightfully. So how do we live with how it? How do we move forward in it? And in fact, you know, it kind of goes into a question I also had about, you know, dealing with people who have, which you have, you know, as your profession, uh, who have, gotten into different kind of situations that they don't feel good about. They, they, they look at those things and those choices that they made and they see them as part, so much a part of themselves that it's very hard to separate uh, behaviors that were misguided with uh, my intrinsic worth as a human being. So we, given all of those things, you know, the, the, the place we've been put in the world, let's say, and, and then mistakes we've made, you know, how do you support people for self, uh, accepting themselves and including yourself, which, you know, you're working in a field where I imagine success is, um, you know, sporadic at best. Yeah. Um, well, I think answering the first question, how do you support people? I think first you name it, right? Which is what we're doing here. We say, right? Self-acceptance is our birthright and it has been taken away from us, right? And here's the methods, um, here's the machinations, here's the tools, here's the tactics that have been used to take it away from us. And that um, it is not that we are not worthy. It is that we've been drawn as not worthy. And so I think one of the first things we do is we call it out and we say, that's what's happening. That's what's actually existing. Mm -hmm. I think the second thing we do is we start to listen to the voice of the inner critic and the inner judge and we start to work hard at recognizing what that voice sounds like. And as we're doing that, we start to separate that from what our own authentic voice sounds like from within. The voice that could say, well, yeah, I made a mistake there, but people make mistakes. 
I can learn from that. I can grow from that. I can apologize there. We can, um, so a lot of what we're doing is changing the way we see ourselves, the way we think about ourselves, and the way we talk about ourselves. I also think, so a lot of, as I said before, there are a lot of different strategies in terms of looking at negative self-talk. Um, one of them is noticing it every time it comes up and helping people to reframe it into something else. When I work with survivors who say things like, well, you know me, I, you know, I am weird. And I say, well, what's weird about you? And they say, well, you know, I, I'm just not normal like everybody else. And so we go into the question about what's normalcy as opposed to typical and like what are people actually saying about themselves? And we work to reframe the, all the negative language. Well, I'm just, you know, not the same as everybody else. I don't think the same way. You know that I don't meet those particular standards in terms of how I keep my house or how I keep appointments or how I manage time. And so we spend some time talking about, again, where are those negative voices coming from and how do we turn those negative voices around? Self-Esteem's Boston new online training centers are for everyone. Learn to use self-esteem skills in your work and in your own life. Learn self-esteem, goal setting, stress management, job readiness, wellness, and more. Online self-directed courses in English and in Spanish. This program will help you to grow and thrive. When you truly believe in yourself, the possibilities for your life are endless. To learn more, www.selfesteemboston.com. So I think that's a really important part. I will also say that one of the things that's a, a, a strategy that a lot of people have found useful is to, as I said before, identify the voice of your inner critic and then recognize that your inner critic has been doing a particular kind of job for you on your behalf. Um, I think about when I was getting married the first time, um, my bridal shower was one of was more important to me than the wedding because here were these generations of sort of female identified folks right who had um been a part of my life my great aunts my great grandmother my grandmothers all of these folks in my life and i got up and i started to talk about how important they all were to me and my grandmother, who couldn't speak in anything but a broken Sicilian accent, I think I got two sentences in to talking about how important they were and how important it was to me. And my grandmother said, Lorena, Lorena, sit down. Don't talk so much. Everybody's looking at you. Sit down. You, no, 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 take up so much time. And what I really realized that this woman who had the courage at 16 with a child and a husband to get on a boat and come to a country where she never learned to speak the language. And she was literally an alien until the day that she died. This really brave woman was saying to me, don't take up so much space. Like, don't feel so good about yourself because it's dangerous. It's dangerous for you, for people yeah. to notice you, right? And she was trying to do it from a place of safety and so he left that voice behind in me, as did many of the other people in my life. And so one of the things I 
worked on myself and worked with a lot of the people who are have been clients or students of mine is to actually give your inner critic voice a different job, right? To say, instead of keeping me safe by keeping me small, I'd like to ask you to watch out for the dangerous people out there in the world and warn me when they're coming. And that way I can be as powerful and as big and as vibrant as I want, and you watch my back. It was a joke that I used to make that when I uh, used to perform belly dance and I wasn't very good at it at the beginning and I realized it was my inner critic like processing every move and having a comment to make about it. And I sat down and had a conversation with my inner critic and I said, you're really good at noticing when things go wrong. So I'm going to give you two jobs as I perform in this bar. One, please watch out for broken glass on the floor because I'm barefoot in a bar dancing. And two, let me know if drunken people are going to get too close to me, right? And once my inner critic had a different job than pointing out all the mistakes I was making, mm -hmm. I was able to dance and flow really freely. And I think that's a really significant part of what we're doing to try to undo the ways in which we can accept ourselves. So... Yeah. Name it, listen to and find your authentic voice, give your inner critic something else to do, change the negative self-talk. Like those are all parts of how you undo that work. Yeah. Uh, Lorraine, one more question. I can't believe we're coming, coming so close to the end. Oh, my gosh. You are working with, you know, in your profession, you have so many different things, ups and downs and, you know, lots of challenges. How do you maintain your own self? You know, this is kind of what, when when Gail was working with us as well, when we did staff training, the staff would always say, why do we need it? The clients need it. Yeah. How do you take care of yourself? Yeah. Well, one, I continue to choose hopefulness, right? Um, it's how I've gotten through the last couple of elections. <laughs> Just choose hopefulness. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is um, to recognize and sit with gratitude the fact that I, at a very young age, like figured out, found a, a, um, a mission and, a, and work that felt meaningful and integral to me. And so I continue to return to that. Um, I think about the fact that every incremental change that I see in myself and anyone that I work with means that I am part of permanent, ongoing, living revolution. And um, I recognize and affirm to myself regularly that like there is something extraordinary about being able to sit at the altar of transformation, that that's a gift that I need to pay attention to and that I need to honor consistently. And so all of those different pieces are really important parts of how I take care of myself. You know, I think I have talked, you know, I have a, a self-care strategy that I've 
put out into the world where I talk about the fact that we all need a balance between renewing practices that put things back in, releasing practices that let things out, sweating practices that help us detoxify, ecstasy practices that are just about bringing more joy into our lives, and peace practices that bring us to places of stillness. And so I try as much as possible to have a balance of those kinds of practice in my life. And I share that information again with the folks I do supervision for, for the folks that I'm doing therapy with, and up until just before the pandemic when I was teaching ballet dance as well. Thanks to everyone for being on our show. And thanks to you, our audience. Remember, when someone wants to talk to you about the weather or politics or whatever, you can now say, let's talk about self-esteem. Yeah.